Hey everyone, it's Megan, the Family Finance Mom, adding a new weekly segment to Finance Explained. Now, in addition to financial deep dives and expert interview episodes each season, I'll be posting Q&A replays once a week. I host these sessions live every Wednesday at 9 a.m. over on Instagram. If you'd like to have your questions answered, look for the question box in my Instagram stories ahead of each session or join live and ask in the comments. But to make it easier for you to listen to the replays on the go, in segments and at your convenience, you can now listen here. Uh, As I indicated in stories yesterday, I know there are a lot of questions about what is happening in Israel. I'm going to use this platform to focus on the economic and market ramifications of that because that is my area of expertise. And I would encourage you if you're looking to learn more about kind of the facts of what's happening um, kind of geopolitically that you look to experts in that to kind of address those things. So I'm going to start by taking the questions that are related to that. There were a handful that came in um, and I'll also speak to it kind of more generally. And then um, we'll take the other questions that came in uh, over the last 24 hours as well. Um, So I'm just going to kind of read some of the questions that people asked around it, and then I'll um, speak to it. It's, let's see, will home finances become even tighter with the events in Israel? Should we think about pulling back more? Money is going to Ukraine. Will money go to Israel too? Will our deficit grow larger? Um, Those are some of the types of questions that people are asking. So I spent the last day kind of pulling taking a look at, okay, what are the dates and time periods of some of the major conflicts that we've experienced around the world over, call it, the last 150 years, and then mapping that against various economic data. And some of the key data that is kind of available in lengthy time series that then makes it kind of most relevant to look at, I've taken a look at a couple of things. What happens to the stock market? What happens to interest rates? What happens to inflation? And kind of as a proxy almost for inflation, what happens to oil prices? So I want to start with oil prices because that is kind of, I think, something that is more concrete and easier for people to readily understand as opposed to, um, for example, talking about inflation, which sometimes I think is a little bit more abstract. So let's talk about what happens to oil prices when there are conflicts around the world, and in particular, conflicts in the Middle East or major oil producing regions. Now, while Israel is not a major oil producing region, um, there are obviously factions at play here on both sides of this conflict. Um, And when I say like factions, I mean the people that would come in to assist either side. So you've heard in some of the press things like Iran may be involved um, on the Hamas side of the equation. And then obviously on the side of Israel, uh, they are a NATO ally. So that would potentially draw in the likes of the US, the UK. Um, And so that's what I'm talking about when I say like the, the, the parties that would be involved. When you tend to have conflicts in the Middle East, um, and as well as like we saw when Russia invaded Ukraine, because Russia is also a major oil producing country, there tends to be an immediate um, impact to oil prices. This is for two reasons. One, there's concern that supply could be disrupted, that if these countries that are involved in the production of oil um, are become involved in a conflict, that that could disrupt the supply chain for oil. 
So you potentially have the risk of reduced supply when you have a reduction in supply relative to constant demand that increases prices. The other reason that you see oil prices increase in the face of a conflict is that you potentially have an increase in demand for oil with the same supply. Why would there be an increase in demand? Well, if there is a major conflict and it involves significant people around the world, you have added demand for energy, pro energy products because you have, for example, the US sending resources over to assist Israel. Um, you have, you know, you need fuel to power planes, um, vehicles, uh, all of those things. And all of that comes from energy products and energy commodities. So that's kind of the two. So you have the potential for an impact to supply. When you reduce supply, that increases prices. And at the same time, you have the potential for an increase in demand, which against even the same supply would increase prices. So hopefully kind of walking through that gives you a sense for why conflict around the world, and especially conflict that tends to um, be concentrated in an oil producing region can have the effect of increasing oil prices. Now, historically, when we've had a rise in energy costs, that is also closely linked with an overall rise in inflation. And it's for many of the same reasons. One, because energy prices influence many of the costs of overall products in our life, the transportation costs of getting products from point A to point B. But some of the same things that could happen with oil prices are the same things that can happen with all goods and services. So if there is a conflict that becomes more drawn out and more involved, you have resources being drawn away from kind of the general economy and going towards war efforts. In that scenario, you have things like labor being called into the war front as opposed to producing goods and services at home, which can disrupt supply chains. It can result in fewer goods and services being created. So when you have a reduction in supply, that increases prices relative to demand. So historically speaking, and it's the correlations are not exact because obviously when there are conflicts around the world, there are always other things going on economically as well. So for example, if we were to look at kind of what happened to some of these data points um, since the Russian invasion of Ukraine to use that as kind of a case study, Obviously, there were a whole bunch of other things going on in the world as well, right? Like we were in the middle of a pandemic recovery, for example. We were already experiencing elevated levels of inflation for all of the ramifications from the pandemic. So to say that like the elevated inflation is due to the Russia invasion of Ukraine isn't entirely fair, um, but we can also say that that didn't help matters, for example. So two things that I would expect to see happen and we are already starting to see happen is conflict around the world, whether you want to call it war or however you want to kind of term it, tends to cause an increase in oil prices. It also tends to put upward pressure on inflation. So those are kind of two um, things that I would expect to see kind of over the coming months and weeks, depending on how long this draws out and how involved it becomes. Um, the other thing is if we look at what could happen to, you know, to your question about sending aid, one of the things to be aware of in our own environment is because we currently do not have a Speaker of the House, no spending bills can be passed. So until our House of Representatives in Congress put a new Speaker in place, 
they cannot pass any spending bills that would provide funds to Israel. Um, the resolution that was passed that avoided a government shutdown that runs through mid-November actually took out additional aid for Ukraine. Um, so that's kind of a chicken egg thing that has to happen. We need a new speaker in place in order to then begin making any decisions and passing any legislation on that front. Um, so that's just something kind of to be aware of. Um, logistically is not the right word, but kind of in terms of uh, order of operations, I guess. And so is there a likelihood that we could potentially be sending financial aid to Israel to aid in their defense? Um, I think that there's probably a good likelihood of that, just given the history of our involvement with Israel, the fact that they are a NATO ally. Um, however, as we've seen, even with giving aid to Ukraine in the current environment, there's a lot of pushback against that because of the fiscal state of the U.S. currently, because of the fact that we've run such significant deficits, because of the fact that our national debt has um you know, balloon to the levels that it's at. And so people are being um, more conscientious about, okay, how much money are we spending and how are we spending that money? And is that appropriate in the context of our current fiscal state? So, you know, where Congress comes out on that, I'm not sure. If history is any indication, I would say that we will likely come to their aid financially as well as militarily. Um, again, depending on kind of how long and drawn out this conflict becomes. If we give aid, would that add to our deficit? Yes. Would that add to our national debt? Yes. Um, one of the things that kind of is the reverse of what you might expect happen, if we are adding to our national debt, um, technically that should, like when somebody takes out more debt, if we don't think about the government for a second, if you are an individual or if you are a business and you are adding to your debt at the relative to the same level of income, that actually makes you a worse credit um, and should make the cost of that debt higher. However, what tends to happen here in the U.S. is because despite everything I just said about the state of our fiscal house, we are still viewed as the world's global reserve currency. We are the currency, the US dollar is the currency in which much of economic activity is conducted in around the world. And so when conflicts like this happen, when global uncertainty increases, there is this concept known as flight to safety. And flight to safety simply means that when people get nervous about what's happening around the world, they put their money in the safest place that they can think of, and that tends to be US treasury bonds. So in spite of everything I just said about our fiscal house, our national debt rising, all of the above, that you know, giving financial aid to these other countries adds to our deficit, adds to our national debt. In spite of all of that, we are still viewed largely around the world as a safe haven. And so in these periods of uh, global conflict or uncertainty, there is this phenomenon known as a flight to safety. And so while over, call it the last month, we had seen treasury rates rising over the last couple of days, we've seen them kind of moderate a little bit because more people are buying US treasuries because of the uncertainty in the world. When more people buy something, it bids the price up. 
And because the price of bonds and the yield on bonds move in opposite directions. So if a thousand dollar, if a bond that sold for a thousand dollars yesterday, more people are buying it. So it bids up the price to say $1,100 for that same bond. The bond itself still pays the same interest rate. So now the yield, which is the interest rate relative to the price goes down. Um, bond math is something that if you're not, you know, intimately involved in finance can be confusing for some people, but just understand that bond prices and bond yields, which is the interest rate a bond pays relative to its price, move in opposite directions. And so that's why you're seeing kind of yields on bonds moderate a little bit over the last couple of days. Um, I'm trying to think what else. In terms of what happens to the market, again, because the U.S. is sort of viewed as the world safe haven, um, oftentimes the market impact varies depending on the direct impact to the U.S. economy. So that outcome is a little bit more mixed. In general, because I looked at this before also when um, the Russia invasion of Ukraine happened, what tends to happen is that when a conflict is short, um, the outcome is definitive and it is in the favor of the U.S. So we come out on the side of the victors. Um, the market tends to respond well. Uh, when a conflict is prolonged and drawn out and there is not significant public support for it, um, when the, you know, it's one of these wars that drags on, drags on forever, um, I'll give an example, like the Vietnam War, which drug on for decades and there was really no positive conclusion or outcome, the market tends to react less favorably to those scenarios. So the outcome there is a little bit mixed. Um, and again, I don't say any of this to kind of negate the atrocities and the horrors that are going on on the other side of the world right now. Um, but I just want to explain kind of what the potential economic financial ramifications could be, uh, simply because that is what we talk about here. And I know you guys have questions about it. So later today, I'm going to be sharing um, probably as a post, a permanent post, so you guys can share it and save it and read through it um, at your convenience. Um, I'll be sharing some of charts and graphs that depict some of the things that I just spoke to. And they'll look at it like over a long time series as well as zoomed in and looked at kind of like, okay, well, what happened with the Russia invasion of Ukraine, which by the way, is still going on. Um, and then what have we already seen happen in call it like the last 72 hours um, since markets have reopened after this weekend. And so you can see a little bit some of the things that I've been talking to with the actual data behind it. Um, okay, so hopefully that answers a lot of those questions. If you have more, feel free to leave them on that post once I get it up later today and I'll address them to the best of my ability. All right, next question. What is core versus headline inflation? So when we get these monthly inflation reports, and there's really two monthly inflation reports that come out. One is the consumer price index, which actually comes out tomorrow for September. And then later in the month, we get the PCE price index, which is the personal consumption expenditure price index. Both of them are measures of inflation. The CPI comes out sooner every month, so it gives us kind of like a first look. And it's based on a fixed basket of goods and services. So assuming that every month I'm going to spend the same amount on groceries and the same amount on housing and the same amount on transportation, 
and how do those prices change from month to month. The PCE price index is based on what our actual consumer expenditures are. And so it tends to come in a little less than CPI because it takes into account things like, well, when prices are rising, maybe I switch out beef for the cheaper chicken, for example. Um, both of those reports that come out monthly publish what I call the headline number. So, you know, the headline that you'll see come across on the Wall Street Journal article or the New York Times article, um, or even kind of in that first paragraph of the release, it'll say like the PCE price index increased by 3.7% uh, over the last 12 months. That's what I mean by the headline number. Separately, they also further in the report talk about a core inflation number. Core inflation excludes the impacts of food and energy prices. And the argument there, or the reason that these reports do this, is that food and energy prices tend to be far more volatile than prices overall, right? Like food prices can be dramatically impacted by, for example, the weather. If we have a bad weather year, that might send grain prices really high. Or for example, when Russia invaded Ukraine, both Russia and the Ukraine are major, or Ukraine especially, is a major grain supply in the world. And so that impacted global wheat prices, and that can have an immediate impact on food. And in general, food and energy prices, they're more volatile. They move up and down more than other price categories as a whole. And so to get a better sense of kind of what core inflation is actually doing, they strip out the impacts of energy and food prices to see, okay, well, what is, what's happening with every, everything else? That's really the only difference between the two. I personally, my opinion is that we pay for everything, right? So if food and energy prices are volatile, we feel that impact to our wallet. So from my perspective, the headline inflation number is what matters to you and me as individuals and our personal finances. Um, the Fed, who is the setters of monetary policy, are looking at core inflation measures because, frankly, their monetary policy has more direct impact on core inflation measures than they do necessarily on things that are like commodity prices, which tend to be impacted by factors that are really outside of their control to a large degree. Um, and so that's kind of their rationale for looking at core inflation as opposed to headline inflation. But hopefully that at least explains the difference between the two and kind of how to think about the two. Um, okay, next question. Best ways to build back an emergency fund quickly on a tight budget, less margin now. So here's kind of the thing with anything in personal finance. There is no kind of get rich quick or you know pay off debt quick strategy. With everything in finance, whether we're talking about building an emergency fund or paying off debt or building a nest egg for retirement or contributing to college funds, anytime we're talking about any of those kind of financial goals, the math is really simple, but it's the execution and the discipline of doing it that is hard. The math that is simple is simply that you have to spend less than you make and save the difference and then use that excess to allocate towards your goal. It really is as simple as that. And I don't mean to make it sound, and so when I say it's simple, I mean that mathematics, that mathematical equation is very basic and simple. 
I don't deny that it is very difficult, particularly in the current environment where inflation has been what it has been, where the cost of living has increased significantly and has increased at a, a rate that outpaces income growth. I fully acknowledge that that makes the discipline of doing that harder than it has been in the past. Um, so what's the best way to go about that? Well, if you're making the same income or you're in the same job that you've always been in, the easiest way to overcome that is likely going to be to add a second income, whether that is having some type of side hustle or having a second job. I mean, I remember as a kid, my mom was a teacher and I remember there were periods of time where she also waited tables at night in order to make ends meet. Um, you know, that was through like the late 80s, early 90s, which is the last period we had where we had this kind of um, inflationary impact in the world. And honestly, in, in the current environment where prices have gotten to where prices have gotten, that may be the quickest answer versus trying to cut back in your budget, particularly to your point when you're saying there's less margin now. Through the pandemic and all of that uncertainty, I think a lot of families already took a red line to their budget in many ways and cut back as much as they possibly could cut back, which means there's less left to cut back now. Um, so I think what a lot of people tend to overlook is increasing their income and ways to do that as opposed to just cutting costs. Um, so like I said, the math to accomplish those goals is very basic and very simple, but I acknowledge that the discipline in accomplishing it is hard. And I would say if you haven't explored working on increasing the income side of the equation, that may be the fastest way to bulk up your emergency fund versus trying to cut costs where you may have already cut costs as much as you can. Um, so I hope that that helps. Uh, okay, next question. So this is kind of a multi-parter. This may be too specific, but do you know if multiple job postings for the same job on the same platform, i.e. LinkedIn, are being taken into account for JOLTS, which is the Job Opening and Labor Turnover Report? Example, a data manager role may be posted for various locales, but it's all the same role. I hope this makes sense. Thanks. So here's how the data for the JOLTS report is tabulated. There are people in the government who literally call contacts at employers and ask them a series of survey questions, and they track those responses from month to month. So the data is imperfect in the sense that it is survey data. It is based on how many people they could reach in a given month. Um, you know, from month to month, they may not get all of their responses. That's why every, you know, the following month, there may be adjustments to the month prior, but they are speaking to an actual person. It's not sort of a automated searching job listings that are out there. So presumably if you're talking to an HR manager, they should have a decent sense of how many job openings do I actually have? And it's not based on how many job postings do I have out there? especially in today's day and age where you may be posting a job across a multitude of platforms. Um, and so, you know, could an HR manager look and say like, oh, I've got 15 jobs posted on LinkedIn and really it's one job posted across 15 geographic locations, maybe, but it's not sort of an automated thing that happens where it's definitely overcounting to your question. So I don't know if that answers your question or not, but they are talking to actual people who 
hopefully are using judgment and saying like, we really just have one job opening, even though it could be available in multiple locations. Um, so I don't know if that helps or not. One of the things if you have questions ever about these data sources and how it's collected in every monthly report, they have a whole disclosure about how the data is gathered, how it is collected, how it is tabulated. And if you go to like the government landing page for where they release these every month, oftentimes there's often also a FAQ section where some of these questions may be answered for you too. So if you're ever curious about a specific data series that I'm sharing or how it's collected or where it's come from, I'm always happy to answer the questions. But if you want kind of primary source information, you can always check it out um, on those government sites as well. Uh, okay. Next question. Do you foresee layoffs coming in Q4 23 or Q1 2024? How bad will it get if so? So this is one of those crystal ball questions, right? Like if anybody knew exactly what the economy was gonna do and when, um, they would be quadrillionaires. Um, nobody knows for sure. What I will tell you is that there are many indications and many kind of red flags in the data that would indicate that we are likely headed for an economic slowdown for a whole host of reasons, not least of which is that real interest rates are now higher than they have been in 20 plus years, which makes it likely that investment is going to slow down because businesses can't afford to borrow at these rates, which means that they can't borrow as much, they can't grow as much, they can't hire as much. Um, that being said, because of the labor shortage, because there are more job openings post-pandemic than there are people willing to work, we may see employers reluctant to lay people off as quickly as they may have in past downturns. So nobody knows exactly kind of order of magnitude, degree of severity. What I will say is that historically in an economic downturn, when we have recessions, there tends to be an increase in unemployment. The increase in unemployment tends to happen relatively quickly and the recovery is more slow after that. Um, I do think there is a likelihood that I still expect that we're gonna see an increase in unemployment. I think it will be more subdued than it might be otherwise because of kind of the labor mismatch we have in the labor market right now. Um, employers may be reluctant to cut as much as quickly as they may have in past downturns because it is so hard to hire qualified labor in the current environment. Um, so whether or not kind of your specific job is at risk, what I would tell you is understand the industry and market segment that you work in. Do you work in a more cyclical industry? Things that are cyclical are things that tend to have more ups and downs through economic cycles. Energy tends to be an area that is more cyclical. Real estate tends to be an area that is more cyclical. Retail tends to be an area that is more cyclical. Um, I, I said real estate, but with real estate, I would kind of lump construction into that as well. If you work in those sectors, I'd say you're more at risk of suffering, of having the potential for greater layoffs than say some other sectors, just from by indication of history. <clears throat> and if those are sectors that you work in, I would be more prepared to have 
the potential for job loss. So when you work in cyclical industries, having emergency funds, having savings is more important and having more of it is more important so that you can ride out those economic downturns. Um, but like I said, nobody knows for certain exactly when a recession will be declared or if we will have one. Um, although I think more and more people are pointing to a high degree of likelihood over the next, call it three to six months. But I also kind of feel like a broken record because I feel like I've been saying that for the better part of a year. Um, the reason I think most people think that it is more likely now than say a year ago or even a year and a half ago is the fact that student loans have turned back on, which is going to have an impact on consumers' ability to spend. People haven't had those payments for nearly four years. And so in order to make those payments, it's going to impact their ability to spend elsewhere. Our economy is incredibly consumer spending driven. And so any impact to consumer spending is likely to result in a downturn in economic productivity, which is the fundamental definition of a recession. Um, it, I mean, that's kind of the very simple reason for it. So those payments turn back on in October. Let's see what this holiday season, how it plays out in terms of consumer spending. Um, and then the secondary piece of it is that just with um, interest rates where they are, it is very difficult to borrow in order to support additional spending, both by businesses and consumers. Um, so anyway, that's kind of the rationale behind it. Uh, we're up against the 30 minute mark, but I'm going to go ahead and keep going because there's still a whole bunch of questions. If I max out my 401k, what's next? Stocks, college fund, I'm late 30s, and I have a high risk tolerance. So this is a great question. And this is one of those things that it can be extremely valuable if you never have to meet with a financial planner. A financial planner is different than a financial advisor. A financial planner is you're going to pay a fixed fee or an hourly rate in order for them to help you map out exactly what steps you need to take to accomplish your long-term goals. So if you're already maxing out your 401k, where, and you're, where you're at today, where your investment levels are, what risk tolerances you're taking, like when do you want to retire? Are those assets going to get you to that point? What is that going to afford you in retirement? Is that consistent with the lifestyle you want to be living? Um, if that's true, then maybe you don't need to be contributing anymore to retirement. If you have children and you want to be able to pay for your college, then maybe the right next step is contributing to your child's college fund. Um, if you're not sure that that's what you want to do, one often overlooked area is that you can put money in a regular brokerage account. Investing through a regular brokerage account can still be tax advantaged so long as you're just investing for the long term. Um, if you are not actively trading, buying and selling in and out all the time, you are not realizing any capital gains and therefore you're not going to incur any taxes until you sell and realize capital gains, at which point you would pay the reduced tax rate on long-term capital gains. So never overlook kind of the benefit of just a traditional brokerage account. Um, it can be tax advantage depending on your personal investment behavior. Um, but if you haven't sat down kind of with a financial planner, I do think it can be valuable, especially to help you kind of map all that out. It's not something that like somebody on the internet like me is going to be able to do on a one-on-one -on -one basis with you, knowing only what you can tell me in a small little box. Um, and I think it can be money well spent 
versus where, a, and not that a financial advisor is not money well spent, but it is a recurring annual fee. They're taking, call it 1% of your total assets under management, which yes, should incentivize them to grow your assets. Um, but that can add up to a lot of money over time. Whereas you can meet with a financial planner to kind of help you lay out a roadmap that you can then use to direct yourself for the next, call it five years or so, and then maybe you meet with them again. Um, so anyway, when people have questions like that, I think that that can be um, a good path to take. Uh, okay, next question. There's two more questions. So why do some investment vehicles have classes within them? Example, class A, class B, class C. So there's often two contexts where you'll see different classes. One is within share classes for publicly traded stocks. Typically, when you see share classes, it is because they have different voting rights. And it is usually because the founders of the company um, want supermajority rights. So for example, Google has two classes of shares. Berkshire Hathaway has two classes of shares. Um, Facebook, I don't know if they still do. They used to have two classes of shares as well. And, and I'm making this up off the top of my head, but it might be like, Class A holders have 10 votes per share. Class B holders have one vote per share. And it allows the Class A holders who often are, say, the founders of the company, um, even if they may not own the majority of all of the shares combined, because they have super majority voting rights, because they get more votes per share, they still control the overall vote of the company. I will say as time has gone on, that has become something that is sort of frowned upon from a corporate governance perspective. Um, it used to be kind of in the hate, the, like the tech heyday, something that was done to um, make founders happy when they took their companies public. I'd say today there is greater pushback on kind of having dual classes of stocks. Um, so that's kind of one of the instances where you might see it. The other instance where you'll see different classes is in mutual funds. Um, with mutual funds, there are often different classes of uh, investment within the same fund. You'll usually see like an institutional class. Um, I'm not going to remember off the top of my head the different structures, but it typically has to do with how much are you investing at any point in time. And the larger lump sum that you invest the lesser fees you may have to pay. Um, I'm trying to think kind of what else. One of the classes of a mutual fund is often set up to allow it to be included in like a 401k um, where you are contributing a small amount every month over and over and over again. Um, it's just the, like the way that it is structured. Sometimes like a mutual fund will have like a minimum investment that's usually what delineates kind of the difference between the classes. Uh, but it often is associated with kind of a different fee structure. And typically the way it works is like the more you're investing, the less fee, like the lower your fee structure will be on a mutual fund. Those are kind of the two instances that I can think of off the top of my head where you have different classes on investments. Um, and those are kind of the reasons behind it. So I hope that answers the question. Okay, last question. Why did Chase, Wells Fargo, and B of A all crash today? 
So I wasn't kind of closely following what happened with individual stocks in the market yesterday. I can tell you big picture, banking stocks as a whole are down significantly relative to the overall market. And it is because of the rising interest rate environment. So I talk about this a lot, kind of call it back in like last spring when we were having some of the um, banking failures. The way our banking system works in very simple terms is this. You put your deposits into the bank. The bank pays you. So say you put all your deposits in a savings account. The bank pays you interest for your savings. Those are now the, um, the bank then takes those and makes loans, okay? So those loans could be mortgages to individuals. They could be small business loans. They could use them to buy US treasuries themselves. So they're making loans to the US government. At the height of the pandemic, when savings rates were really high, interest rates were really low. So you put a whole bunch of money into the bank, a whole bunch of deposits into the bank. They put that money to work at a point in time where interest rates were extremely low. And they may have locked themselves in to low interest rates for too long of a term. So if they made 30-year mortgages, for example, to um, homeowners and locked in those rates that call it 25 and 3%, um, now they're having to pay you for your savings higher interest rates maybe than those mortgages are bringing in. And banks profit off of the spread, the difference between what they can earn loaning money out and what they can and what they have to pay you for the money that you deposit. So when we have a rising interest rate environment like we have right now, which is the fastest rising rate environment we've had in more than 20 years, it compresses spreads for banks, which means banks make less money. And there's concern in the banking sector that and the Fed created this whole facility in order to address some of these concerns um, and remove some of that stress and worry about banking collapses. And for the most part, I think we've seen some of those play out. Um, not to say that there might not be more, uh, but that I'm trying to, I think I lost my train of thought. But basically what happens is Banks have to pay you for your deposits. Those rates are getting higher and higher, but they may already be locked into loans that are paying less than that. So there's the potential for more losses. There's also the potential that some of the loans they made, particularly in the commercial real estate segment um, of investing, may be worthless. And so they're going to have to write those down. The other thing that happens too is as interest rates rise, they have to mark to market the loans that they've made. So if they are holding, for example, 30-year treasury bonds that are paying 3%, but now 30-year treasury bonds are paying 5%, the 30-year treasury bonds they're holding are going to be worth significantly less. And that is that facility that the Fed created where they can take those assets, um, basically give them back to the Fed, and the Fed will loan to them at kind of the face value of the of the treasuries as opposed to what the mark to market would be. It gets a little bit complex, but that's the gist of it. The gist of it is that spreads are narrowing, which means bank profits are narrowing. And that's why banks have underperformed overall over kind of call it the last year. Like yesterday, overall, I think the market actually ended up up. Um, so, and I didn't really pay attention to what happened with individual stocks. 
Um, but that's kind of big picture what's been happening in the banking sector, call it over the last year or so. Um, okay, I think I got to all the questions that were submitted. As always, this replay will be posted here in my video feed. If you were just joining now and you couldn't catch it all, I also post the audio portion to my podcast, Finance Explained, to make it easier to listen on the go. A couple things to be aware of that are coming here this week and just coming in general in the economy. I mentioned earlier, tomorrow we get the Consumer Price Index for September. That is our first monthly reading on what's happening with inflation. Um, so people will be looking for that. Also, every Thursday, we get both jobless claim numbers, weekly jobless claim numbers that are based on actual unemployment filings. We also get the weekly number from Fannie Mae on what average mortgage rates are. That has been rising very quickly over the last several weeks um, and is nearing and getting closer to 8%, which would put it at its highest point really since back in like the early 80s, I believe. Um, so obviously that's having significant impact on the housing sector, but those are some of the major data points that are coming out. The other thing to be aware of is that it is earnings season. Um, typically most quarters end at the end of September. And so over call it kind of the next two weeks, we'll be getting lots of earnings report from publicly traded companies. Um, and so if you do see aberrant behavior with individual stocks, whether it's the upside or the downside, it could be that they released earnings and surprised investors either positively or negatively. So that's something else to kind of keep an eye on. Um, I will be sharing kind of major releases as they come out to the extent that they are major market movements. Um, also, a lot of times in those earnings releases and in the subsequent um, kind of Q&A sessions with investors, we learn a lot from company management about what they're seeing and experiencing in the, in the economy. Um, and so we'll kind of keep an eye on what uh, executives are saying. The other thing is, like I said, today I'm working on kind of finishing putting together all that data on kind of war in the economy and what the impacts are to kind of give you a sense of what you might expect to happen, um, given what's going on on the other side of the world, depending on how severe it gets, how long it lasts, how much involvement there is from other players around the world. Um, so we'll be keeping an eye on that. Uh, I think that that's it. So have a good rest of the week. Um, if you do have more questions kind of about uh, specifically kind of the financial and economic implications about what's going on in Israel and even what's going on with Russia and Ukraine, because I think we forget, but that is still going on. Um, those conflicts do have very real economic and financial impact around the world. And so, you know, when I get that post up today, if you have those questions, feel free to leave those there. I would just ask that this is obviously a super sensitive topic. Um, if you have specific questions about like the political conflict itself, that really isn't my area of expertise. So I would encourage you to kind of pursue those questions um, somewhere else. So have a great rest of the week. I will be back here next Wednesday to take your questions live again. And thank you as always for keeping your questions coming. Thanks for listening to today's Q&A replay. As a reminder, to get your questions answered, be sure to follow me on Instagram at Family Finance Mom and look for the question box in my stories ahead of each live session or join live Q&A at 9 a.m. Eastern every Wednesday. 
Any resources mentioned in today's replay can also be found in today's show notes.